there are many of you here tonight that have been helping and have helped in the past few weeks with several of our events. And uh, is this, are we on? There we go. All right. Can everybody hear me? Is that okay? It's hard to tell from up here. All right. We've had several uh, events and things that have taken place. I do want to just reiterate my thanks for all of you who helped with Vacation Bible School. Uh, That was such a tremendous effort. We had so many that stepped up to help with both our our preschool, our elementary uh, group here, and then also the 6th through 12th grade group at Charlie Daniels. We had so many that, that put in time and effort to that. When you have 350 something three year old through sixth graders, uh, through, uh, rather through 12th graders at VBS, uh, that is an undertaking that takes an army of volunteers. And so we're very appreciative. We also mentioned earlier our 48 hour leadership experience that our high school and college age had uh, called Chisel, where they were able to go to all kinds of different places and meet with with ministers in the area, with different kinds of ministries, and look at the kind of leadership that they've exhibited, different ways that they as Christian men can lead. And that was just a terrific event. And we also, right after that, had Make Me a Servant Week. And you would, you would be surprised at how many teenagers we had in this building, working with disaster relief, visiting in nursing homes, doing things that needed to be done around this building. We have a lot of young people that we can be very proud of, and we're thankful for that. Thankful for you being here this evening. As you know, as we've gone through on our daily Bible readings this year, oftentimes we've used our Sunday nights to sort of review what we have been studying, some of the passages that we've gone over. And what better way to begin a review on a Sunday night of our walking through the Bible by looking at some of the books of the Bible and their themes. And so we'll go ahead and begin... And I, I do want to warn you, a lot of our children know these pretty well. So, us, you know, those of us that are adults are really going to need to keep up here. Uh, remember, the first book we think of when we think of the Old Testament is the book of Genesis. We remember that. If we can just remember the big N, that sounds like begin. And Genesis is a book full of beginnings. We see the beginning of man, the beginning of sin. And so all kinds of beginnings are found in Genesis. Uh, right after that, we have the book of Exodus. And the theme for this book and this picture couldn't... Uh, be too much more obvious for us. We've got a big exit sign. They're exiting Egypt. And so we think of the book of Exodus and we remember exit. This one is a little bit more difficult because you have an individual here who's wearing a robe. He's also wearing Levi's. And there's someone who is giving his left foot a kiss. And if you say left foot a kiss fast enough, that could remind you of Leviticus. And uh, he's, wearing, he's wearing Levi's. So he's from the tribe of Levi. And that tells us about our offerings and feasts. And so we we remember the offerings and feasts that are written about in the book of Leviticus. And then here we have the next book, the book of Numbers. And they're doing a lot of wandering because Numbers tells us about those that did not believe that God could give them that promised land. Listen to the Ten Spies report. As a result of that, that generation was wandering around. And so finally we come to Deuteronomy, which uh, again, this one is a little bit of a stretch. Um, but there'll be more stretches along the way as we go through. But we have these uh, two tablets that are uh, singing a duet while they're uh, running. So you have a duet running, and then that could be, if you could put yourself in, in his place, there's doing a duet around me, which you think of Deuteronomy. Uh, and that reminds us of the law. Deuteronomy is Moses giving these sermons that are restating the law. So we think of Deuteronomy, we think of the law. Then we come to Joshua. And Joshua here, you can see, is a general, and he's conquering. 
And if you'll remember, when we went through the book of Joshua, we were thinking of a conqueror. And so when I look at, we look at Joshua, think of a conqueror. And then after that, you have the book of Judges. As you can see, this judge has the wig and the gavel and the whole nine yards, and he's on a motorcycle. And there is more than one cycle because the theme of Judges is cycles. All throughout the book of Judges, Israel's following God, then they turn away from God. God raises up a judge that brings them back into a right relationship, and then they turn away again, and that cycle repeats over and over again. Then we have, uh, as, as we're going through the book of Ruth, and that is a love story. We remember the book of Ruth because uh, there's a, a book on the roof. And so we think book of Ruth, and then of course we have the love story there. Uh, and as, as we go through, we enter into uh, more of the books of history. We have one sand mule in this picture. And so we think of first Samuel, if you say sand mule fast enough. Um, just use your imagination. First Samuel, and then uh, we have here standing on the one sand mule, he's holding a saw, and that's King Saul. And you can look at his heart and realize that later in his reign, he didn't have a heart that was seeking after God's will. So if we had one sand mule for first Samuel, two sand mules will equal second Samuel. And here you have a king playing the harp, and we think of King David. And so he's here playing the harp and the two Samuels. First Samuel was Saul. Second Samuel is about David. And then we have here first kings. You can tell he's, he's a king. He's got the big number one there. And he's a, he's a man that's all by himself. You could even say he's a solo man. Because when you think about first kings, you think about Solomon standing by himself. Uh, you can see the wives behind him and the money that he has that he's holding. And if you look at his heart... Whereas Saul's was a heart that didn't do what God wanted. David's was a full heart that did what God's wanted, uh, God wanted. Solomon has sort of a half-filled heart. At times in his life, Solomon, being the wise king with wisdom from God, followed in God's direction. Other times he didn't. And so that's what we think of Solomon. And then you have not just one king, but two kings here. They're on an aisle. They're here on an aisle. You have two kings. If I'm trying to think of the theme for second kings, I look at this aisle. You have two trees here. And that's a big X. And so you remember when we think of two kings on an exile, we think of second kings, and that deals with the exile that happened to God's people. And as we continue to go through, you have one chronicle here. We think of First Chronicles, and that tells us about David. We see his picture again. First Chronicles tells us about David. Second Chronicles tells us about Judah. And so as we've gone through the books of history, then we come up to some of the more recent books we've read through on our daily reading. This is a book where you have the letter S, and he is cheering on this group of people. So you have, as you can see in the air there, an Esra. And so if I'm trying to think of what the book of Ezra is about, I can just imagine this guy cheering on, and he's, he's cheering on both the temple and the people. So when you think of the book of Ezra, think of the temple and the people both being rebuilt as Ezra came back to assist and to lead in that rebuilding effort. You also have here someone who is working on a wall. And the wall is only about knee-high. And you can probably see where I'm going with this. Because Nehemiah reminds us about rebuilding the wall. When I think of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I'm thinking about rebuilding the wall. And then right after that, we have a couple of our newer ones. Uh, we have here a woman who is stirring something, but she's not just using any spoon to stir this bowl. She's using an ester. And so when we think of the book of Esther, here she is, and she's on a, a Persian rug with a Persian cat. She's a queen. When we think of the book of Esther, she is the queen of Persia. 
And so these are some that we've gone over uh, this year so far. Uh, we do have one that we'll be getting into uh, that'll be newer to us. And this is uh, the, the book of Job. Now you can tell that we're dealing with Job here because you can see evidence of all that he's gone through. You'll remember in the book of Job, he is under attack by Satan. And he has his livestock taken away. He even has his sons and daughters taken away. Eventually, his health is taken away. And it doesn't seem like he has anything left. And the book is a series of conversations with him and his friends. Cycles of speeches about where God is in all this. And has Job sinned? Does he really deserve this? And the ultimate message of the book of Job... Interestingly, the book of Job doesn't explain why suffering exists. But it reminds us that God is in control. And you can see there the hands, almost like when we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. You've got the hands there in control of Job. So when we think of Job, we think that God is in control. And we can really speed through some of our New Testament ones that we've gone over so far. Uh, As we think about the Psalms, you remember the, the book of Psalms, about prayer and praise. They're worshiping there. And then also, uh, you remember as we think about the book of Proverbs, uh, that Proverbs is about wisdom. A fool and his money are soon parted. A wise saying. And then you come to the Gospels that we've been going through on the New Testament track. Here we have a mat that has a big U on it. We're reminded of Matthew. And there Jesus is the King of Kings. You remember that? Here we have an ark with an M on it. So we had a, a Matt U and now we have an M Mark. And we think of Mark. And uh, Mark has a gentleman here who is serving an ant to an anteater. So we remember that Mark shows Jesus as the chief servant. And so here Mark talks about Jesus from the aspect of service. And the service that took place in his life, and his ministry. Then you have someone looking very intently at a person. And he's a, he's a physician. You can tell by the bag that he has. And so we remember the book of Luke. And he's looking at Jesus as a perfect man. Describing the perfect man that Jesus is. After that, we come to a couple new ones uh, for us. You have the letter J doing some, some painting here. And that's a J. It's, it's not a J that's off. It's a J that's on. So you have John. When we think about, when we think about John, and he's drawing a picture of God. And he shows us that, that Jesus is the Son of God. You've got that Son right in the middle. Of God, John focuses on Jesus as the Son of God, the Word made flesh. After that, we come to another book that probably is a little more obvious than the others because there's a big axe in the picture. The book of Acts that teaches us about the model church. In other words, if we want to know how to be the church in the 21st century, we look back to the book of Acts. Not that they were perfect, but that they show us God's divine plan for the church. And also coming up in in our readings in these past few days has been the book of Romans. Now you can see the Romans standing there in their uniform. If that wasn't enough, you've got a man holding two oars. So you can tell he's a row man. So if you need any help, you've got the row man there in the back. And then the theme for the book of Romans is paid in full. You can see it written right across there about our debt. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. It's been paid in full. Hopefully those will be helpful to us. Maybe we can have a little bit of fun as we go through on our our walk through the Bible as we've been reading every day. But I want us to focus on the latter half of the chapter that we began this morning. So if you would be opening to Acts chapter 14. Have you ever noticed there are some things that are okay for us when we're young? 
some things that are okay for us to do when we're young. In fact, when we're children, we can get away with a lot more than we can as adults. And before we dive into our text in Acts chapter 14, I'd like for us to bring to mind a scripture that the Hebrews writer penned in talking about some things that are okay for adults. We picture we, some of them are okay when we're young. We picture a baby drinking a bottle. That seems very natural to us. But if we were to see an adult doing the same thing in public, we might start to ask some questions. There are some things that are okay when we're young, but they're not okay when we're adults. And a few verses of Hebrews chapter 5 remind us of that fact. As Christians, there are some things that are okay when we're growing and developing as Christians, but as we're maturing, we should be able to move beyond those things. I'll read to you very quickly, verses 12 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 5, where he writes, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, if I'm going to mature as a Christian, I need to get to a point where I move beyond the milk, where I move beyond what I received as a, as a, a newborn Christian, as a babe in Christ, and I move into maturity, spiritual maturity. And that's a challenge for us. It's a challenge to constantly be trying to motivate ourselves and to stimulate spiritual maturity in our lives. But according to this passage, it's an absolute must to move beyond the basics and move to the meat of the word, to a spiritual diet that allows us to have that understanding of the Bible where we can discern what is good and what is evil. As we think about maturing our faith, we'll focus tonight on deepening our discipleship. When it comes to being a disciple, the word means follower, someone who's learning from a master. And as, as disciples of the Lord that we read about in the New Testament, as disciples of our God, if we want to grow deeper in our discipleship, we'll need to move past those things that are basic and move towards those things that are more challenging and that require us to dig into Scripture and to be able to discern between good and evil. During Jesus' ministry, he told in a parable about a certain kind of soil. And in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 21, he mentioned that there was one of the soils in his parable that did not have root in itself, but endured only a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. In other words, when God's seed is planted on this soil, it might spring up very quickly, but there isn't any depth there. There's not a root system there. And so because it springs up so quickly, the first persecution that comes up is going to mean the end for that seed that had been planted. He's going to stumble. We know that we don't want to have roots so shallow that the first persecution can knock us out, knock us off track, and keep us from being the Christian that we need to be. We also know that we need to mature. We need to move from milk to meat. And what's interesting is that the latter half of Acts chapter 14 gives us insight. When Paul and Barnabas were spreading God's word, what did they do to help churches mature? What did they do to help congregations mature? We're going to get a little taste of what they did in the latter half of Acts chapter 14. So if you would be turning there, if, if you need to, in your pew Bibles, it's on page 981. Beginning in verse 21. Speaking of Paul and Barnabas, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra 
Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now this morning, we looked at the difficult treatment Paul and Barnabas received in Lystra. Here we see that after they left Lystra, went to Derbe, now they're coming back to that area that they traveled through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And so they're walking right back into a situation where they could easily have received that same sort of persecution. They have the courage to go back there because they wanted to make sure that those converts that they had left were taken care of. And if I want to know how to grow deeper in my discipleship, I would do well to look at what Paul and Barnabas did for these new Christians. And as we just work through these verses, very simply, we see a few things that take place. If we want to deepen our discipleship, the first thing we can do is encourage each other. Did you notice that in in verse 22? Strengthening the souls of disciples, exhorting or encouraging them. Uh, The phrasing there could literally be rendered to prop them up in faith, to give them a support in faith. Can you imagine how they would have felt after Paul had been stoned, left for dead, they get up the next day and then they leave and you have all of these people that had been converted. We're not sure exactly how many, but there seemed to be a a relatively large number, large enough that they would need this kind of follow-up. And they'd seen what happened and now they're, they're struggling to know what's going to happen next. Is that the sort of treatment I'm going to receive? And so they come back to encourage them. You may even remember that Barnabas, his name was the son of encouragement. And so you can imagine how encouraging it would have been to have Paul and Barnabas spend time with you. Have you ever known someone that was just an encourager? That you could spend five minutes around that person and make it through the rest of the day or the rest of the week. Have you ever been on a long trip with someone who was just a positive influence, a positive encourager? I can think of comments that have been made on on every trip that I've taken with, whether it's a stateside mission trip or an overseas mission trip, when I was frustrated about something or when I was tired, I can remember specific individuals coming up and encouraging me. That sticks with us, doesn't it? Encouragement is important. And I think it, it may be even more important than sometimes we're tempted to believe it is. Often when we picture the Great Commission in Matthew 28... We understand the part about going and making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. But sometimes we forget that there's a part added on to that, that we teach, we baptize, and then we continue to teach. And continuing to teach those who are baptized is just as much a part of the Great Commission as going out and evangelizing. So it's not just enough for Paul and Barnabas in this case to convert some individuals and to leave them there and to go do something else. They were concerned with teaching those who had been converted. It was important. I think of the group that went just recently to Ukraine. Those of you who have been before know the congregation that we support in Crescedo Armisk is not one that's, that's very large, uh, especially not by our standards but it, in America, but it wouldn't be large by, by most people's standards. You could fit it into a, a small room, maybe, maybe 14 or, or 15 people, sometimes more, sometimes less, and yet it's amazing the ministry that exists in going and encouraging these Christians. I wish you could see the looks on their faces when they spend time 
around their brothers and sisters in Christ that they know they have a bond with, they're encouraged by, that is, that is a true ministry there. And there's some great work taking place in that area. It's coming along slowly, but it's coming along surely. And as we continue to have a part of that, we're going to be encouraging those who are over there and who are laboring in a field that's very difficult and in an area that's very difficult to reach people. And they need our encouragement. It's important for us to encourage each other. But not only did they encourage each other, but after that, they talked about their tribulations. They talked about their challenges. Did you notice that in verse 22? They said, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, it would have meant something for Paul and Barnabas to be talking about tribulations because these individuals saw firsthand what took place the last time they'd visited there. But they talked about their challenges. They talked about it openly. Sometimes that's difficult for us to come to a setting like this and to open up and to talk about our challenges. In fact, we might even think, well, when we come to worship, we need to just leave all our problems outside and come in and worship. We need to leave everything behind. And, and I understand the focus that's necessary in worship, but there's no better place to bring your problems than to a group of God's people and to lay them before the throne of God. There's no better place than to submit those problems, to cast those cares onto God. Sometimes we sing songs, does Jesus care? Oh yes, he cares, I know he cares, and yet, yet we're tempted to hold on to our problems and, and not bring them to him in prayer, not let anyone else know about them. One of the most beautiful sights we get to participate in as a church family is when someone comes forward to make a request known, a request for prayers. Have you noticed that when someone comes forward, almost immediately there are people that come and sit down with them, that wrap their arms around them, that say, we're here for you, we're part of a church family. That's what we are, isn't it? A church family. And so we hurt with one another, we help one another, we encourage one another. And when Paul and Barnabas wanted to encourage these disciples, they didn't try to glaze over the fact there would be some tribulations. There will be some challenges. And there will be challenges for us in our Christian life. When we become Christians, we don't receive some sort of, of Teflon-coated armor where, where challenges come at us, but nothing sticks. We have the same challenges everyone around us faces, but we have the power of God and His people to rely on. So we need to be open and honest about our problems. As a church family... I love it when I see opportunities for us to show love and encouragement to one another. Sometimes it's difficult to make a walk down the aisle, especially in a room as large as this one. But it's easier when you know that everyone in this room loves and cares for you. We need to share our problems with each other. Also, they were growing in the leadership. Something that was very important for them on this trip through was that they would establish elders in every congregation. That the congregation would have leadership. Now, it's likely that in these congregations there would be men who had grown up with a, a Jewish heritage and that knew the law. And so they would maybe have been a little bit further along than in some of the Gentile areas uh, that, were, that were almost predominantly or totally Gentile. And so you would maybe have had some men that were more prepared for that role. But that was always a concern throughout the New Testament. A concern was to establish leadership. And even in a congregation where we have wonderful elders and deacons... And, and, and we have wonderful people that step up in so many different ways to lead. We can always be challenged to grow as leaders. Every single one of us. It might not be a public leadership forum, but every one of us is, is, 
leading someone. Someone is watching us. Someone is following our example. It might be someone in our family. It might be someone at work. But every one of us could stand to accept that challenge of growing in leadership. If I want to deepen my discipleship, that's what I'll need to do. Not only that, but through that process of appointing elders, did you notice prayer and fasting were a part of that? I talked with my father just the other day, and he mentioned receiving a phone call in the congregation, uh, the, the church building where, where he works. And the voice on the other end said, well, I've got a question, and I've asked hundreds of different people this question, and I need an answer. Sometimes you get phone calls like that, and you never know where they're going. And so he said, well, okay, uh, what's the question? And he said, I'm looking for someone who can tell me the kind of prayer I can pray to make God do what I want him to do. Thought about that. You know, what was that? I'm looking for the kind of prayer I can pray to get God to do what I want him to do. And so dad responded by talking about how prayer works and God's a sovereign God and he has a better vantage point than we do and, and all, all those things that we would immediately think of when that question was asked. And the gentleman responded by saying, well, I've heard all that before. I just thought you might have something a little bit deeper for me. And so as, as he was trying to deal with that conversation, uh, uh, later on, he, he was telling one of his friends about it, and his friend said, you should have just told him, well, that's funny, because God's been asking me how to get you to do what he wants you to do. And so it, I don't know if that would have worked or not. I'm not sure what the right response is there. But that does reflect a, a way that we look at prayer, though, sometimes, doesn't it? How can I get God to do what I want him to do? There's something I really want in life. How can I get that? And yet the kind of prayer we see here is a prayer for leadership. A prayer for who will be the person to lead in the direction God wants them to lead. I've always been fascinated by a story that's, that's told to be true of, of an African uh, tribe upon accepting Christianity that they developed certain paths that they would walk in, in the wilderness. Their own sort of little prayer paths that they would walk when they prayed. And the more they walked, the more worn down that trail would be. And so if they saw someone who had grass growing on his trail, they would say, your prayer path has some grass on it. When's the last time you were spending time in prayer? I wonder if I asked myself what my prayer path looked like. If it was worn because of constant prayer, or if it was maybe overgrown a little bit. I wonder what my answer would be. They focused on prayer, and also along with that, fasting. And when we think of fasting in Scripture, fasting is never used as a, as a quick fix diet design. It's always associated with prayer. And the point of fasting is that you're setting aside something that would be a part of your life. You're setting aside the food that you would eat and focusing that time and that energy on growing closer to God and what God would have you to do. Interestingly, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. He says, when you fast. There's an assumption that we as Christians will be doing that. I don't know about you, but that's challenging to read that a big part of this selection process included prayer as well as fasting. And there may be some things from my life that, that I need to have a fast from that, that aren't necessarily food. I may need to have an electronics fast every once in a while. I may need to have a computer or a TV fast every once in a while and use that time to draw closer to God. Prayer and fasting were a big part of this process in growing deeper in discipleship. And something else they did that was interesting in these latter a couple of verses 
In verse 27, when they, had come, when they had come together and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. If I want to deepen my discipleship, I need to spread the word about what God is doing. As they were seeking to establish these congregations, they were going back to the congregations that, that sent them and they were spreading the good word about what had taken place. When we come together to hear a report of a mission effort that's going on, we are participating in hearing about the work that God is doing. Notice they didn't say the work that we did. I don't know about you, but if I were Paul, I might have been tempted to bring up the fact that, you know, I was stoned and, and drug outside and left for dead. You know, and that's something I really endured. But they were talking about what God had done. I think about that. Last year when we went to Ukraine, we lost our luggage for 10 days and I had trouble not telling everyone I came in contact with about dealing with all that. You look at some of the missionary journeys that Paul and Barnabas went on, it gives you a different perspective. They were spreading the word about what God has been doing through them. We see that same sort of idea when Paul would write to the Philippians. He wrote them in that very first chapter that they were participating in ministry, participating in the gospel with them. And we find out later on they were participating because they were giving Paul support. When we read in chapter 4, Verses 15 and 16, they were supporting him financially. Because of that, they were participating in his ministry. When we send groups out, we're full participants. We're, we're participating in the work of God. And that's something for us to, to hear about, to think about. Both as individuals and as a congregation, if we want to deepen our discipleship, we need to be encouraging one another. We need to be talking about our challenges, sharing our struggles with each other, growing in our leadership, spending time in prayer, and even in fasting. When we look through scripture, that's not something we're, we're supposed to talk about. You remember the Pharisees, they fasted so that everyone could see what they were doing. That's not something we publicize, but personally, as we want to grow, that helps us deepen our discipleship. Also, spreading the word about what God is doing. Sharing with others the good things that are taking place. I wonder tonight if there's anything that's keeping us back, anything that's holding us back from continuing to develop. This is a picture we've used in one of our teachers' meetings, and I wanted to share it with you. You have here a turtle that apparently, when he was younger, swam through a little, a little ring that got caught in his habitat. He swam through there, it got caught right in the middle, and he's grown around it. And if you see from the top view, he has grown and developed around this little ring. Here's just a little ring, but it was inhibiting his growth. And I wonder if there are any aspects of our lives we can look at and we say, you know, that's really inhibiting my spiritual growth. That's really keeping me from growing as, as deep in my faith as I need to grow, from being the kind of Christian that I need to be. And the good news tonight is if there is a spot like that in our lives, we can bring that before God, before his people in prayer. And if you want to begin that life, walking with God, make the decision that these disciples had made earlier in Acts chapter uh, 14 to submit your will to God and then continue this process of constantly maturing and constantly growing. Or if you want to shed some of the shackles that have been holding you down and keeping that growth in, if there's any way that we can help, please make that need known as we stand and sing together.